You're listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Hi folks and welcome to Let's Talk Photography episode 31, the show for April 2016. I'm your host Bart Bouchatz. Uh, this is a slight change to a normal schedule, so no panel this week. It is me and a special guest and we're going to turn uh, to talk about how we learn to get along with new software because that seems to be something we're all doing and I'm not doing very well at getting along with new software so I need help and I don't know anyone better to help me than my guest who is Elaine Giles. Hi Elaine. Hello. Um, now, myself and Elaine used to podcast together many, many years ago, but it's been so long, so it's great to hear your voice again. Yeah, good to hear you too. And so, do you want to tell the listeners a little bit of why it is I chose you out of all the people on the planet to talk about this topic? <laughs> I'm guessing it's because you watched a video of mine. Would I be yes, warm? You would be very, very warm. And not just one, actually, to be honest, because I, I, so, you know, whenever you do a video on something I care about, I do like to go to your videos because they, I, I, you, your way of telling the story agrees with me. <laughs> oh, well, that's good to hear. Well, you probably picked me then because um, despite starting my life as a lawyer, I soon came to my senses <laughs> and um, <laughs> left the law behind me. And um, I retrained to train people. Uh, it was because when I was in my last year training as a lawyer, mm -hmm. I got involved with the implementation of a new case management system. And it was fantastic, but no one could use it apart from me. So um, I ended up training all of my colleagues and I absolutely loved it. So I went away and I trained up to be a Microsoft certified systems engineer and a database administrator. And back then, people were even trained to be trainers which is a little meta, but it's true. <laughs> it is. Well, train, I guess teachers courses. go to teacher college, right? We do, we do. And um, I started training. It was very corporate back then, though. Well, luckily, it's all changed since then. They were very corporate courses, tended to be longer, um, single businesses. You were supposed to look at what they needed. But it always tended to be feature-based training, which isn't the best. That's not how I train now. Oh, so instead of talking about how you achieve a task, you would talk about, well, I can do this, therefore let's talk about this. Yeah, what I like to do with people, I like to ask them what they needed. So, you know, you've come on this training, what do you need to do when you get back to work? But because of the way the training was sold by the companies who were selling it, again, because it was very corporate, it was mm -hmm. one business to another business, they had to provide them with an outline of what would be covered. And if you can imagine looking at an outline for a course, it wouldn't start with what do you need to do when you get back to work. It was a list of features. Yes. And at the end of the course, you would know all about these 23 features. They might not be the ones that will be useful to you, but you will know about them. Well, I've actually had a strangely inverse experience of that where we were trying to get training, only we wanted it to be, you know, about how we achieve things. And every train, every company we try to engage would say, oh, no, no, we have this course where we do these features, and we have this course where we do these features, and we have this course where we do these features. And I don't know, we don't want one of those. <laughs> we want an expert who knows what they're talking about to come out and answer our questions. Exactly. And That's it, how training should be. It was really hard to find the training company prepared to, you know, invoice us for that kind of thing. Mm, they don't like doing that. They like to know that what they're providing is the same for you as it was for a company last week and will be for another company next week. Yeah, control C, control V, change the date on the slides. Yeah. That's anyway, not what everybody needs. So 
you, you you're not here to talk about Word or PowerPoint or anything. No, like <laughs> because I also I believe you were at one say were you an official Oracle or not not Oracle Adobe trainer or did you just train people in Adobe stuff? I was an official Adobe user group manager. So I ran a local user group. We had meetings locally. Um, so it's like a big gang of creatives at a pub. And we then took it online. That was probably about 2007, 2008. So it was quite early in terms of online training, especially live online training. Um, but we took our meetings online as well. And we started getting people from all over the world. So, um, yeah, I was an Adobe user group manager at the time. So I guess that's the same idea as the, as the mugs, only Adobe. So yeah. Mug is a Mac user Same group. Sorry, yeah. my other hat on there for a minute. <laughs> uh, but now, if we if we, if we look you up on the YouTube's, we will see you doing a lot more than just Adobe stuff. Absolutely, because um, a, a, there's an, enough applications from Adobe. You're right, but they're not for everyone. They're not for everyone. It it seems to be Photoshop has become a verb and it's standard, but not everybody wants to use it. Not everybody can afford to use it. Someone told me recently to go, um, oh, yeah, Google their name in Facebook. Because <laughs> they, did, they, did, they meant search, but in their mind, search and Google are identical. And I think yeah. with image editing, Photoshopping and editing an image have become completely mushed together. Yeah. I mean, I, I know some people now, um, friends of friends who, who say, oh, you, know, you do some photo stuff. And they don't know that Photoshop is actually an application. They just think it's, it's a computer word for editing photos. So you're right. Yeah, you Photoshop it, yeah. Yeah, you Photoshop it. And it doesn't necessarily need to be with Photoshop. They ask me what I use to Photoshop sometimes. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. <laughs> so, yes, around, um, I, I taught myself photo editing starting in the late 90s. And um, I was using Photoshop. I think my first version of Photoshop was version 2. And I loved it. It was quite limiting at the time. You had to, it, the thing is with, with Photoshop and other applications that aren't quite as powerful as Photoshop, way back in the early days of Photoshop, the application could probably do quite a lot of what it can do now, but it did it in a very manual, mathematical way, and you had to really understand it. They hadn't got round to putting in the hand-holding stuff. Right. Which I find important because... You may pick up an application these days and think, oh, it's not Photoshop. It's not got this and it's not got that. But if you actually know how Photoshop started, you can probably make that less mature app do 90% of what you think Photoshop is only capable of. And even today, actually, if you just look at the Photoshop UI, you don't really get the sense of the amazing power the thing is hiding. It's the, a no. lot of the really cool stuff is not immediately obvious. No, the best thing with the Photoshop interface I think most people miss, and that is whenever there's a new version, um, you'll know that you can create custom interfaces for it where you can hide menu options and things. I'm assuming you know that. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can. I, you myself can and Photoshop have not become friends yet. <laughs> right. Well, what Photoshop does is it's got this fairly, like you're saying, hidden depths of an interface. It has a range of tools on the left-hand side. As you select a tool, you'll get a context menu across the top. And down the right-hand side of, of a default view, you'll have more panels. Hmm. Um, but in Photoshop, you can move those about. You can hide the ones that you're never going to use. So if you're a photographer and you're never going to need the 3D stuff, then just completely erase it from the interface and you don't have to worry about it. You can save those as a workspace. And ah. the best thing that Adobe ever did 
was when they release a new version, you will find in there, if you look in the menu under the interfaces, the saved workspaces, that there is one called New Features. And oh. it is a dedicated interface that highlights the new features in this version. And how they do that, they use the colour options. You can actually um, make menus a different colour and make tools a different colour. Right. So they do that to highlight the ones that they've changed or ones that they've added. So it's a, a fast way of getting up to speed with a new version. So the first thing I do when there's a new version out is switch to this interface and just have a look around it. And I can see what they've added, what they've changed, and it's just a fast way to work. That's... But if you didn't know that there is there, then they're not pushing that too well, are they? No, but now you see, basically, so I, I think I am, the reason I'm doing this as a show instead of just me bending your ear is because I think I'm in quite a common situation that particularly Mac users at the moment, there's a lot of us are lost because we were really happy with either Aperture or iPhoto. And now we're not because a lot of iPhoto users aren't that happy with photos and Aperture users are definitely absolutely not happy with with photos. And so we're sort of, well, I am definitely sort of stumbling around trying to see what I can do with what. So I've decided that I the only thing that I think competes with the management aspect of Aperture is Lightroom. So I say, okay, so I need to get myself Lightroom. Well, if I'm going to go for Lightroom, then Adobe have this nice offer where you get Lightroom and Photoshop together for a really, you know, for a reasonable price. Yeah. So I'll do that. Okay, great. And I'm sitting there in front of these two very daunting interfaces going, I feel like I did the first day I got my first digital camera, like I'm lost. Mm. And so I've got myself half unlost by going to lynda.com and paying a lot of money. But then I'm then I'm going, yeah, but I'm not falling in love with this. And then there's Affinity Photo has come out. And then people keep saying that this app is cool and that app is cool and the other app is cool. And so I have, at this stage, I think I have a backlog of at least two apps that I paid $50 or more for that I haven't even launched yet. And I just, okay. I need help to, to, <laughs> to find my feed again. Lightroom probably is the way to go for management. Um, I did use Aperture, but... I was primarily a Lightroom user and I like the fact that I, I chose to use both because I mm. thought the photo books capabilities in Aperture were fabulous. Yes. Um, what I did was I linked the images rather than deciding to embed them within their own library catalogue. So you did that in both apps? I did that on both apps, which meant I could go to either app and do you know choose whichever one was mm. better for what I was doing. And I always try and do that. Um, so one of the things I'd say in relation to any photo app, obviously with, I don't think Lightroom's got much in the way of competition anymore, to be honest. Well, if there, there is, are, it's really well hidden. There are other ones, but they're just nowhere near as powerful. They tend to be um, more of a competitor for Bridge, which you will right. also have in that photo thing. The reason that Bridge is there as well as Lightroom is Bridge lets you look at other file formats from the Adobe suite. So if, if you oh. had your InDesign files and your Illustrator files, that's not really Lightroom's job. That's what right. Bridge is for. And Bridge is actually, I, I actually love Bridge. I think it's one of the apps that's severely underrepresented in terms of people actually using it. And I think the problem is, like you're saying, it's there. People think, but it looks like Lightroom and Lightroom's the one I should use. That's mm. right, isn't it? And I can't really argue with that. For, for photos, yes. Lightroom is where your photos should be. So, so I guess have... 
for for someone like me who's only buying the photo photographer pack, I, so I, the only thing I'm getting from Adobe is basically the photography stuff. So I'm not getting InDesign. I'm not getting any of the other products. So I guess for me, Lightroom is a sensible home. It is because most of your content, I'm presuming, is either photographs or possibly video from a DSLR. Yeah, although my video is staying in Final Cut Pro. I like Final Cut Pro. Until Apple kill Final Cut Pro, and then we get to have this conversation all over again. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but then we can talk about things like ScreenFlow, <laughs> which is a lot cheaper anyway. Oh, that um, is Bridge, Bridge is a nice app for managing files, though, be- because it can actually do, uh, I wouldn't say more than Lightroom, but it it does it in a more hands-off way. It's one of the apps that you, I'd say it's like a window that you you work through. So you use Bridge to manipulate files on your file system, but they can actually be files that you've taken into Lightroom already. You're just doing different things with them in Bridge because Bridge can do things like building um, websites to export them. It can do PDF portfolios and all of that kind of thing. So I wouldn't discount Bridge. It's, it's a hidden gem. But um, like you're saying, the problem with something like Bridge is if you, if you think there isn't enough training out there for Photoshop, then you're going to find there's very little out there for Bridge. Very little. It is, the, it is the red-headed stepchild of the Adobe family, isn't it? It is. And I think one of the problems with it is that people, if, it, if someone's a trainer and they do understand it, they think, oh, I should do a course on Bridge. That's what I'll do. And you think, <laughs> mm, best not. So they'll probably kill it next week. And this is the problem. We do have an abundance of riches in terms of applications. But to get to where we've got, a lot of things have been binned and people had invested time and effort in them. And now they're a little bit more skeptical than they were a few years ago. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think, you know, Aperture sort of burnt me a little bit. So I'm very, very wary of having any of my stuff housed by an app that I don't think has a long life. And I, I mean, I can imagine Adobe chopping and changing bits and pieces of their portfolio, but I just can't imagine Adobe deciding one day that, you know, something we couldn't care about photographers. <laughs> I don't think that'll happen. Yeah, so I, I feel safe moving my files into Lightroom. I, I feel like that's that's not quicksand. I think that's going to last. But just because I have my files in Lightroom, you know, and I can do a lot in Lightroom, and, and just like Aperture, in fact, better than Aperture because it has the lens distortion stuff that Aperture never developed, uh, and it does that non-destructively, which is a real luxury when you're coming from Aperture. But I, I don't have to stay there. I can do 90% of my work there and, you know, get stuff done. I'm nowhere near as quick as I used to be in Aperture. I'm finding it takes me twice as long to do everything. Mm. Uh, but I'm guessing I'll, you know, I, I didn't become good at Aperture overnight. So I'm guessing patience is probably what I need. But I don't have to stay there. So I, I now have the ability to, to round trip out of there and to anything and then back so now that has me going, so that means I really do actually need to care whether Affinity Photo has gotten really good or whether the new HDR app from Trey Radcliffe is worth the money. So I'm sort of thinking, I, I don't think I'm going to be a one-app person. I don't think you can be a one-app person today because anything could happen to that app. It could get bought by somebody else. I mean, Google bought, um, oh, which was the one they bought? Nick, it was a set it? of filters, yeah, and and. It was like, oh, it's good news because they'll make them cheaper. They'll keep developing them. Or no, it's bad news well, because they won't. Well, they made so, them app- free about a month ago and everyone's celebrating. And I'm going, no, that's the first step to them dying. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. As soon as something goes free with Google, it's like, be careful. Be very careful now. And I just don't trust Google with 
continued development of things. They like to buy stuff. They might keep it going for a little bit. But what they're really looking to do is to pull out of it what they want and Mm. then to put that, to plug it into one of their services. Because we see so many applications these days where the developers are telling us that they cannot survive unless there is some kind of subscription model. So be that for storage or services or whatever, that's what they're after. So Google aren't in the business of selling software. They're in the Mm. business of providing services. And either you're the product or you pay them and then you're not the product. With Google, actually, you can pay them and still be the product, which is a unique and special approach, which is one reason Which seems to work very well for them, to be honest. That's why I think with an application. It also makes them very energetic enemies. I I wouldn't like to have to rely on, on their offerings solely. Let's put it like that. I'd like well, to mean, have an option to to move around. Yes, I, I work in the education sector, and there is very visceral anti Google feeling because of the fact that you are always the product, even when you pay them for a service. Mm. Yeah, and I can understand you, that. Yeah, you know, Microsoft on the other hand just say to you, "Give us your money, we'll do whatever you like." <laughs> I, I like the simplicity of the Microsoft model. You know, you pay us, okay, fine, we'll provide you a service. But they don't do anything in photography, so that's a whole different discussion for another show. No, they did try that, and they did try it with something that could possibly have competed with Lightroom if they really? developed it, which was a Media Expression Studio way I, back when. I never even heard of that. That was, um, I'm trying, frantically trying to remember its name before they called it what they called it, but it was um, a file management application. It was brilliant for photos, um, and it built CD catalogs. So you could archive. This was back in the days of tiny hard drives. You could archive off portfolios with reams and reams and reams of photos, and you had a database on your system. Your disks were in a cupboard, and you could browse all of your images and work with your images kind of offline. And Microsoft bought this product. It was quite expensive as well. 200 pounds i think but i thought it was fabulous for archiving photographs off and i was literally going to buy it and i thought i'll do that in the morning and i came in the next day and i went to the page and i went to click the buy button and i stopped and i looked up at the page and i thought when did where did that come from and there was a little microsoft logo at the top and what happened and overnight they'd bought it literally overnight and i didn't buy it at that point because i thought whoa what are you doing with it? Why have you bought it? And they kept it going for about five years. And it was part of a suite of applications that they were pitching to web builders, really. So right. this was for managing your applications. And I thought it's a shame they didn't buy it and add photo editing capabilities to it because then it would have survived. What they've done with it now, I think, is, re- is I think they sold it back to the original developers. So now it's in a bit of a mess. So I couldn't recommend that at the moment. But no, they've never really excelled in that area, which is unfortunate. They had the opportunity and they missed it. Yeah, which is a real pity. Uh, actually, I, I think Windows people in general may be slightly worse off on all this editing stuff than those Mac users are, I think, because what what's the Windows equivalent of up-and-coming apps like Pixelmator and Affinity Photo? Well, it's funny you should ask that. Okay. Affinity Photo. Oh, really? Affinity okay. Photo is coming to Windows this summer. Oh, wow. So uh, it's going to be released in beta within the next six to eight weeks, probably. Um, And it's their first... See, the people who make Affinity Photo, they are Serif, and they have made 
low cost Windows applications for years and years. So I was quite surprised when they released Affinity Designer that they went for the Mac market. And I thought, well, I know there's a lot of creatives on a Mac, mm. but you're Windows developers. Yeah. And Affinity Designer just hit the spot. People absolutely loved it. So they had a ready-made beta market and market for as soon as Affinity Photo was ready. Yeah. And that came out last September. They have been promising uh, the InDesign equivalent, so DTP for the Mac. That will be oh. coming out in beta in December this year. But in the meanwhile, they've announced that they have been working behind the scenes and they are going to take all three apps eventually onto the Windows platform. Well, that's pretty cool. Which is fantastic news because yeah. up till now, Windows users had Photoshop, obviously. Mm -hmm. Shall we skip Windows Paint? Should we feel... <laughs> Forget that didn't happen. <laughs> Look, it had its moment in the 80s. Do you know Windows Paint is still there and sometimes it's the only option for something? It's, it's frightening. Well, for silly um, things like making a screenshot that's a file, yeah. Yeah, I've done that myself when I've taken screenshots and I've had to crop bits off or add bits on or cover something up. And you look at the machine, you think, that's all that's there. Get used to it. <laughs> but it's horrible. It really is horrible. Um, the best other one that has been on Windows for many, many years is PaintShop Pro. Oh, yeah. I used to be a PSP user many years ago. That is still going. Um, Corel bought that. Oh, and, uh, yeah, that reminds me of CorelDRAW, but I'll forget that as quickly as I possibly can. I used to use CorelDRAW. I used to love that. Uh, and Ventura for DTP. Maybe uh, I had a dodgy version, but what I had would crash every two seconds and make me very cranky. Oh, no, I was okay with that. I liked at the time, back when I was a Windows user, that there were so many buttons and bells and whistles right in your face. Every tool that you could possibly need was right in front of you. But... You know, yeah, having got used to the Mac simplicity, it was possibly overkill. Uh, yeah, I, I remember being impressed when apps would have five rows of icons. And now I look at it and go, oh, my God, you haven't done any work. There's no design been done here. You've just vomited icons on the screen. I'm like that myself now. So I don't think I'd find it quite as intuitive as I told myself it was back then. Um, but they've carried on developing it and they've carried on releasing it. But like you said, apart from the two... There mm. is nothing that is anything like uh, as competitive as the market that you've got on a Mac. Yeah, because you have this middle region in the Mac that's sort of not free, not 99 cents, but an awful long way below Photoshop, you know, which is your Acorns and your Pixelmators and now your Affinity Photos. Mm -hmm. And there was another one in there whose name I can't remember right now. But, you know, this sort of nice grouping of cheap editors that are in the Mac App Store that you can have on all five or six of your Macs if you're like me. Um, yep, I agree. I, it would be nice if they had that. I'm hoping, in a way, that Affinity Photo appearing might sort of kickstart it a bit. Because, yeah. you know, on on Windows, people either say to me, well, I've got Photoshop, or they've got something else. I mean, I've got a friend who's got a machine, and it's probably about six, seven years old, knows that he needs to get a new machine, has been recommended. I kept my mouth shut. But he has been recommended from other people to get a Mac. And I thought... Ah, bliss. You know, he'd, he would really love it. I know he would. Mm -hmm. But he is refusing to move even to another Windows machine because he has some software on there that came with his camera that he uses to catalogue his images. And he's got 12 years of photos in there. And he's Ooh. scared he won't be able to get them into anything else. I'm assuming replete with his metadata. But he literally, this machine is hanging on by a thread he knows he needs a new one, and he's too scared to move because of the software. He's going to—he's he, so going to have to bite it. Like he's going to have to cut that Gordian knot sooner rather than later, because when the magic smoke comes out of the back of the computer, then it's too late. 
that's what I'm thinking because I, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, I, I don't get involved. It's, it's on a friend basis, not a business basis. And I'm thinking, are you backing that up in any way at all? And, you know, that that's don't ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping so, but I possibly not. And, you know, he does. He's aware of Photoshop, would love to learn. It got the problem of the subscription. And I think if there were something to compete with PaintShop Pro, so PaintShop Pro and Affinity Photo together, they could help each other because they'd be competing against each other feature-wise. And then they get closer to Photoshop faster. Well, I think like Pixelmator really took off because of the Mac App Store. When the Mac App Store came out, the cheap affordable photo editor that was in there first and got all the limelight and was front and center apple recommended app was pixelmator and that has that made them now no one's done that for the windows app store yet so maybe affinity may be the company to to do that on windows i think people on windows are aware of the notoriety that that it's got on the on the mac platform and i think they're ready for it i think they're ready for it right now so I think as soon as I'll probably get more views on that video and then I'll get complaints that it's for the Mac and not Windows. <laughs> well, depending <laughs> on how similar they make the interface, that may actually not be a complaint. I think they'll they'll make it that I think it'd be virtually identical. The only thing is when you look at things that have been ported from a Mac to Windows, mm. there is a definite clunkiness looking to it. I'm thinking Scrivener. Scrivener on the Mac is I think it's it's a great interface for how complex the app is. Yeah. I know other people have said, oh, you know, I don't like it. I want it to be more more modern, more streamlined. But I'm thinking horses for courses. It's complicated. It needs all those features. Yeah. But you look at it on Windows and you think, oh dear. Really? The t- like the, the tabs on the left hand side, instead of them being like all smooth and stuff, they they look like they're from the nineties. And it's just what's available from the operating system to be able to build that. So I, my first thing is going to be, how nice does this look from Affinity Photo? Because I think it is a nice app on the Mac. And I, I don't, first of all, I think the interface can, can make or break it before people mm. go any further. If they take one look and think, I don't, just don't like the look of it, they're not going to use it no matter how good it is. Yeah. Yeah, you can so put people off what? very quickly. Oh, you can. You can. And but people, they don't have much tolerance these days. They seem to have less tolerance than, than even sort of 12 months ago. When you read the comments under YouTube videos where people have taken the time. That is the dregs of the internet. <laughs> I know, but you'd think to get to this page, you must have searched for this. You, I mean, I, I've looked at my own stats on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I get plenty of hits. Um, interestingly, it's 80% men, 20% women. That has never changed in all the while I've been on there. The, the countries haven't changed much. But you, when you look for where the traffic's coming from, 90% of it is from YouTube where people are typing in search terms that relate to the video they get back. And then they write all kinds of stuff about, I've wasted well, you know, 34 seconds of my life watching this and, and it's appalling. It doesn't answer my question. <laughs> I think you'll find you wasted another minute writing that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, people don't have much tolerance. I think software... <sighs> I mean, there's certain things with software that drive me mad. I'm sure there's things that drive you mad. And that level of frustration where you think it should be easier than this or it should do it this way is getting worse. I don't think it's actually getting any better. Maybe people were more accepting a few years ago, but they certainly seem to be much shorter tempered now. Yeah, I think when I get what makes me short tempered is inconsistency. Mm. There's no logic. I, I, I think the point where me and an app become friends is when I get 
the philosophy behind the app and that only works if an app has a philosophy if the, if it wasn't designed by committee if actually there's some thought went into it and i think one of the first things in, in your affinity photo video that caught my eyes you immediately hammered home on the single thing that would have driven me nuts until i understood it was the fact that affinity photo has these well, it doesn't call them modes what was it personas or something it personas yeah, and if uh, that little bit of information there, uh, that would probably be the difference between me going, ah, what is this junk to, oh, I see. <laughs> the first time that happened for me was uh, when I was having to move from WordPerfect to Word. And WordPerfect was owned by, it was WordPerfect, then it was Novell, then it was Corel. And I thought, this isn't going well, so I'll have to look at Word seriously. Hmm. And I just couldn't get it at all. I thought, why do people think this thing's fantastic? It's appalling. And I could have written a dissertation for you three times over on what was wrong with it. Yes. And then I sat down with the manual and a large, large pot of tea. (laughs) And I wasn't so much interested in the features of it. I wanted to understand why it did something that way. And one of the things that drove me mad was headers and footers. It was so simple in WordPerfect to have as many different headers and footers as you liked. Any word wouldn't do it. Hmm. And it was only when I'd read the manual, which literally was probably about 800 pages, front to back, that I realised, okay, I get it. I can have as many headers and footers as I like, as long as I put them in a different section. So that's what section breaks are for. But in the manual, these two concepts were for like seven chapters apart, and they didn't really relate the two together. And it was up to me to learn every feature and then think about how the features interrelated with each other. And I think that's where people struggle. They, yeah. There probably isn't a manual these days for a start. And even if they've learned about feature one and feature 47, they've not made the connection between the two, that they interact together to give you exactly what you want. And that's my job. I need to do that because I, I see people and I, I mean, when I train face to face, it's fantastic. You can see a light go on and it's just Bing. like, yeah. That was worth the entire day. That yes, it's one, one of the came, things I, I love. One guy came into a, 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 a PowerPoint course, mm-hmm. and this PowerPoint course had been cancelled once, and he's like, oh, you know, I've got to come back for you another day. And he sat down, and he's like, there. And um, we just got introing each other. And he sat there looking quite, didn't want to be there, had, had other things to do. And I, I just told them that when you click on a box, a text box that got some text in it, click on the edge to move it, click on the middle to edit it. And he went, oh, my. <laughs> That's it. I, I don't really need to know anything else. I don't care about anything else. That has driven me mad. And it might, whatever it is that's driving you mad, you're more than likely, you get frustrated with the software, but you probably either think it, the software's broken or it doesn't work the way you think it should. Hmm. And what you don't do is try and understand the philosophy behind it because, well, that's all far too much work. How are you supposed to know what their philosophy was if they don't actually tell you? Yeah, but I think the fact that no one wants to read a manual probably doesn't make this very easy on people. And I think we're all sort of guilty of it. I should just be able to open it and it should just be obvious. That's true. But But that's difficult. (laughs) It is difficult. There's sometimes that things work just the way you think they should. And that's when you think, wow. And you automatically feel a little bit better about that app. You're going to be more forgiving with that app because one feature worked the way you thought it would be. You'll take a little bit longer with that to understand something because the other bit was okay. So maybe you're just missing it. You know, you'll hmm. be more patient with that app. Um, but I, I said that training had changed. It, it has. 
you know, it wasn't uncommon when I started for a course to be five days. You might even do a certification boot camp over six weeks. Yeah. Now people want training in, in two minutes or less. And that's not <laughs> that's not a joke. You're right, yeah, a YouTube video, I, I want to go in here, I want to type, I don't know, clone out tree, and I want to know what to do within 20 seconds of clicking play. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I should be perfect. I, I, 10 seconds later, when I've done it, it should be perfect. Yes. And, you know, I like to show in my training that it doesn't always work like that. I mean, that video that you watched, mm-hmm. I remember doing it and... Whenever I train, I've I've done it before. So whatever the demo is, yes. I've done it before. There's there's a joke that I have with, with my other half. There's um, a video that I did as part of a training course of Pixelmator, and it used an an image that was uh, copyright free, and it was a dog, and this dog was called Bunny. So the demo was Bunny the dog, right? And um, obviously a dog. I was deliberately looking for a dog. It's a hairy furry dog, and it's against a blue sky, and it needs knocking out of this image. Well, if I did that once, I must have done it at least a dozen times before I sat down and made the video, because I need to know with a very good degree of certainty what will happen depending on precisely where I click. And or the where thing you is, paint or whatever, yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, with all of these things, it's based on a randomized engine. It is never the same twice. Right, because if it was exact, then it wouldn't look natural, because nothing in the real world is, mm-hmm. is a perfect repeat. It's all a bit random. Yep. So one of the things when when I'm creating training is I need to have enough to say to cover the demo, enough words to say, because I think a demo where somebody stops talking, you think, oh, sound's gone. And then you've got to try and have background music and stuff. I mean, when I started training, they used to tell you to ask a question and then wait nine seconds for an answer. Nine seconds and people are going to have rebooted thinking that it's broken. Nine seconds is an eternity online. (laughs) It is. It is. I mean, my, it was pretty long in a classroom, but, you know, online you can't do it. So you have to have enough to say to explain what you're doing and cover the demo. But when the demo could be on a good day, mm-hmm. maybe 90 seconds, but on a bad day because it's just not behaving itself, it could be three and a half minutes. It just <laughs> depends. And maybe it'll go wrong and you'll notice in that video it did. And yes. I said, well, this worked in rehearsals. This is rather embarrassing, isn't it? Let's do that again. And I got a guy that wrote to me and he said, the best bit was when it went wrong. I loved that because that happens to me all the time. And you showed us how to get past that, that, you know, it can happen and that it's not just you. It's random. And I feel good after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's nice. That's the thing with these apps today, though, isn't it? They are very complicated, but there is... There's a feeling that you should be able to do everything very, very quickly, that the learning curve isn't there, that, mm. that it's just come in, it's lovely and warm, and just carry on. And you can't do that. You do need to get the best out of an app. You need to understand bits about it. And you need to be a little bit forgiving of yourself as well, that you'll probably have a vision in your mind of, of what you're trying to achieve but just go with the flow a little bit, lighten up a little bit and just see where the app takes you. And sometimes that can be very hard because you're focused on the outcome that you want. And the only way to get the outcome that you want quickly mm-hmm. is to know the app inside out. And as we've said, apps are complicated and you can't be expected to know every app inside out unless you do want to take the time to do that. That's what training used to be. That was your three-day Let's sit here for 25 hours and we'll learn every feature. But Mm. even at the end of that, could you then sit down and do something specific? And I'd say no, 
not without thinking, how all of the pieces that you've learned link together. Yeah. Whereas now people want training where they want to tell you what they want. So remove tree from background and they only want to learn how to do that. Because they, they have a deadline 30 minutes from now. They have a nap and they have a tree and it shouldn't be there and they need to make it go (laughs) away. Or they literally do not want to know anything else. You know, their problem is that they've got 20 photos. They need a tree taking out of five of them. And when they've done that, they are finished. And they don't want to know about the 37 other features that you think might be quite handy for them to know. Yeah. If they don't want to know, then they don't want to know. So learning's become very bite-sized. It's it's moved away from this is how to make the text bold, italic and underline. And this is how, you know, how layers work. No, people don't want to know that. They'll, they, they will be prepared to listen to you about layers if it fixes a problem in this image. Yeah. So uh, I call that outcome-based training. Yeah. I have to say, for myself personally, the bit I always want from, from someone, and it's not always easy to find, uh, but it's something you did very well in the Affinity Photo videos, I want someone to tell me, these are the regions of the interface. This is the jargon that has been invented for them. Therefore, when I look in the menus, this keyword means this thing over here, and this keyword means that thing over there. And, you know, when you do, you know, this is the thinking behind it. If you click here, details go there. If you choose this, then stuff goes over here. Just like, you know, a, a one-minute even guided tour of the thinking of what I'm seeing on screen. And then usually I begin to make friends with the app. But if I can't find that, I, I get so frustrated. Mm. Because then I end up going, okay, how do I do this? Okay, now how do I do this? And I can't see a relationship between any of these things. And I'm sitting there going, why? Why is it like this? I think you've got the kind of mind that does ask the question why. Some people don't. (laughs) Yes, they do. They just want want the two minutes, show me how to do it. They don't care what it's called or how to find it next time. But I think if you learn the way that that you say you prefer to learn, Mm. I think you've got more of a hook to hang future knowledge off. Um, what I say I do when I learn an app, I mean, that Affinity Photo one, I think I did that training probably about 10 days after it came out. Right. And I would probably sat with it for a couple of hours. The reason that I could sit with something for a couple of hours and probably be up to speed, maybe 80%, is because I can build on the existing knowledge that I've got. I call that relatable knowledge. The fact that I've used Photoshop for over 20 years means... This is how you make a selection. This is what a layer means. This is what a blend mode is. And it doesn't matter that that app that I'm looking at now does it in a completely different way. It's still the same principle. So for me, if I was saying to somebody, if somebody said to me, how should I learn? I'd say, if you've got the time and the patience and the interest, then do learn the theory behind it. But if not, then it's perfectly acceptable. Just watch a video, find that it does what you want, and then just do that. But the more knowledge you have, the more you can relate new applications to it. So you were saying there's a lot of applications, mm-hmm. and there is. I mean, there's Acorn, there's Pixelmator, there's Affinity Photo, and they are all what I'd call general photo editing. That's before you get involved with things that are specific. So like an app from the App Store that, that does black and white, it does it really well. Or it's an um, HDR app, and it does that really well. All yeah. of them have some kind of concepts and principles that you've probably seen in another app. So if you can relate them together, it is easier to learn. If you imagine thinking about 
looking at a new spreadsheet, but you don't know what a spreadsheet is, then, then you, you're just going to look at it and you're not going to have a clue. If you come to that new spreadsheet because you understand Excel, it's amazing how much knowledge you already have. So if anybody has seen Photoshop and they've dabbled a little bit, I think they'd be quite surprised if they come to Affinity Photo or Pixelmator that so much is the same or at least easily relatable. Or it uses, you know, so it uses the words layers and layer masks and all the things that you, you know, should have come across before, I guess. Yeah. Yep. Some, most of the time they use the same terms. More practically, I'd say 99% of the time they use the same shortcuts too. So if you are looking at the interface thinking, I, I can't see a stamp tool, press the S key and hope for the best. Because <laughs> it's the S key in Photoshop. Just, just try it and have a look. And it doesn't always work. Um, there's a transform in Pixelmator trips me up every time. It's not Command and T. Why not? Because that's about the text the only... interface on most Mac apps. <laughs> it, it doesn't match Photoshop though. So it doesn't match Photoshop, one... but it matches everything um, else in the Mac App Store. Command T is, brings up your text tools. Yeah, so I, I guess it depends primarily where your mind is as you're sitting there. Are you, are you a Mac user or are you a Photoshop user? But yeah. other things in there, you know, it doesn't even tell you that the square bracket keys change the, the brush size up and down. And if you hold the shift key, it changes the softness. It doesn't tell you that, but because Photoshop does that, give it a go. Have a look at it. Is that what it does? You know, I think that's one of the first things I learned from one of your channels years and years and years ago about Pixelmator because I was cranky because I couldn't make the brushes change size. Oh, <laughs> I just remember pretend that, it's yeah. Photoshop. It's like, oh! Yeah. I think if you just sort of close one eye and just pretend it's Photoshop and just try it and you'll find that most of what you try will work. Um, again, there's little quirks, but once I think you've got that, it, it's like taking the stabilizers off and thinking, no, I'm all right with this. You know, There's a little bit that's familiar. And once yeah. it's a little bit familiar, I'll, I'll learn a little bit then around the edges to it and you'll get more confident with it. Now, if you happen to already know the jargon, something I find very helpful, on the Mac, the help menu has a search box. Oh, I love that. Mm. Yeah. If you can figure out the word, that usually gets you to where you need to go quite easily. But only if you have the previous knowledge. If you don't know what you need as layers, then that's never going to help you. No, I like that for when I'm with a new app and I probably do know the term I'm looking for. So maybe I'm looking for, can I save a selection? And I'm looking at the interface thinking, oh, I've no idea. Where would I hide this? Where, where will I find that? And I use command shift and forward slash, which brings up the help search box and just start typing selection. Yep. And in, in any application, it will give me a list of what's there and I can kind of browse it. And there's some apps, um, Sublime Text is one. The menus are exhaustive. They just they just go on and on forever. Yeah. And I just use that all the time. I don't bother learning where anything is because they keep moving it anyway. <laughs> just use the search and then you'll either find it or you won't. Or you can rant on Twitter and that usually works, doesn't it? Well, I was going to say, it works for me. I was having a terrible day with Power, PowerPoint. <laughs> and having, you know, it saved my bacon with Affinity Photo. Elaine then went and saved my bacon with PowerPoint as well. I was very impressed. Oh, you weren't happy, were you? You were trying to merge two presentations and it didn't like you. Well, no, my, <laughs> my approach is generally speaking that the most important thing in a presentation is the substance. Therefore, I start with the substance and only when the substance is ready do I go make it look pretty, which in Keynote has never done me wrong. <laughs> but Microsoft want me to edit my template before I add my content. Oh, mm. but I have, look, it's all here. I've written it all. But you thankfully said that if you create a new document and then import the slides, it'll be fine. Yeah, and it reuse slides. 
Thank goodness for that. I, I actually thought I was going to have to copy and paste all of my stuff again just to make it look... In, in you true... were very lucky. I was on Twitter that day. <laughs> I, I honestly, I was very. I, I had almost begun when you when you when your reply came in. I had almost begun. I was quite cranky about it because, as I say, it needed to have our corporate branding, and I just had it was a play. I just went into PowerPoint, went that one, which was white te- black text and a white background. Typed up all of my slides, put all the hard work in, and I was like, okay, I have two hours until this meeting. I can make this look appropriate for our organization, and it just wasn't happening. <laughs> Let that be a lesson about your learning PowerPoint, using PowerPoint. Well, it's yeah, we've, as an organization, we have just adopted Office 365. And the feeling is that those of us in IT should eat our own dog food. Mm. Which That's I agree with as a principle, but at the time it made me use PowerPoint and that didn't make me happy. But anyway, I was digressing ever so slightly. <laughs> so I guess the big question. So I'm a, I'm a, a regular person, I've just bought a new app, I'm sitting down to it. What's your advice for how I go from, hmm, that's a pretty icon, to, and now I know how to use it? What what approach do you take when you start with that really scary empty screen? First of all, I think you've got to make a decision about whether this is your life's work, that you want to understand every nuance of how it works, or whether you just want to know enough to get by. From that point, if you decide, I'd really like to understand this, then you're probably better with uh, maybe a book or a manual. You know, Try the manual if there is one. Mm. I always find the release notes are really, really useful. They actually tell you what they've fixed. So if something didn't seem to work, maybe they fixed it. And they also give you a good clue as to new features to look at. If you are, because people learn in so many different ways, yeah. and right now, is a great time to be learning anything because years ago we we only had like you're saying very very long linda courses or very difficult very hard going books but now you've got youtube and youtube's a great place to start for shortish videos or even longer videos most of mine tend to be around an hour although there are short ones about individual topics but i tend to sort of cover things in an hour um there's also like lots of different places to start learning If it were me and I was sitting down to learn something, like I say, the first thing is I wouldn't discount any knowledge that you have from elsewhere. So like you said, Command and T on a Mac, that tech stuff. And that's what it does in Pixelmator. So even if your knowledge is from a completely unrelated app, don't think, well, that's in a silo of its own and I've got to forget all that now because now I'm looking at this app. Try and find areas where you think, oh, that's like such and such an app or, oh, that's like how that one does it because then you'll remember it easier. Yeah. Um, so I, I would sit down with my new app and I would be thinking about what I'm trying to achieve with it. For me, that will probably be maybe five or six demos and what I'll want to see is this is how they worked in Photoshop. How would I go about doing that in here? Very occasionally, I'll come to a point where I'll say it can't do it. But usually that will be features like 3D or mm. smart objects. The rest of the time, I find you can get comparable output from that app. It might just take a little bit of a detour or it take you longer. But as you start doing it, you'll start learning the tips and tricks for that application. One of the things I did with Affinity Photo, you know, when you, 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 with a photo, you're probably zooming in and out a lot as you're yes. working. Yeah. And I find with Photoshop, it's a nightmare. 
you're with the zoom tool or you're holding down the key and then it's jumping all over the place. And I sat there with Affinity Photo and I don't know what made me do it. I think it's just probably other applications. I just reached out to the keyboard and I pushed the option key and tried what would be the wheel on the mouse or if it's a... Two finger swipe otherwise, yeah. One finger swipe, just a one finger swipe. Oh. And it zoomed in and out. And I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> now, it sounds so tiny. Oh, you can zoom in and out. How nice for you. Yes, but the thing is, I didn't have to switch tools, which means I can pick the tool that I'm working with and then maybe I'm cloning or stamping and I can just zoom in and out. And when I'm at the right zoom level, carry on. Press yes. the key again, zoom in again. Just saving two seconds switching from tool to tool a massive, massive saving in time overall because I'm doing it 300 times every time I'm editing. So something like that can be a great boon to your workflow, even if it's something very simple. But a lot of people don't do that. They see the Zoom tool and they think, oh, I'll click on the Zoom tool, click in, then I go back to the other tool, then I go back to the Zoom tool. And you spend all your time clicking between tools. That will just dishearten you. So I'd say check out the shortcut keys because they're worth knowing. One of the asides of that story is in ScreenFlow, you can do exactly the same without the option key. And you push away from you, and that makes it smaller, you zoom out, and you pull towards you, and it zooms you in, gets bigger. But if you've turned on, on OS X, the accessibility options, you can do that on your entire screen. Yes. You just hold down the control key. And the difference is... It works backwards. Oh, no. Mm. And it's making me seasick (laughs) because I thought this explains why I've always struggled with screen flow. So there's something that I was doing and I've been doing it for eight years. Yeah. And I always scroll the wrong way. And I never had I joined the two together in my mind until I looked at Affinity Photo. And I was so pleased that it zoomed in and out for me that I then thought screen flow zooms that way. And then I thought, why am I zooming the wrong way? And it was only when I held the control key down to zoom in on something else and I thought, this works backwards. So that's what I was saying about relational knowledge. It works at system level. It works in two other apps. The thing is, it's working backwards in one. So now I know it's working backwards and I'm not on autopilot. So that, that was a great find as well. I'd say as a trainer, you have to be very careful that there is a tendency, and I'd say this comes from the manufacturers of the software, they like to showcase something that looks fantastic. Oh, that's impressive. And a lot of trainers just follow suit, and that's what they train you. But sometimes we actually call it um, column feature in Word syndrome. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like the, the Photoshop equivalent of a photo booth on the Mac. Yeah. Demo's real good. How often yeah. do you use it? Approximately never. Exactly. And that's what I think. You watch some demos, you think, oh, wow, that's great. That's great. That's great. Then when you sit down with an app and you start doing what you want to do with it, you get a little disheartened and you think this isn't as impressive as that. But you know what? It doesn't matter because some features demo fantastically well. And I'm not going to waste your time demoing them to you because you'll never, ever use them. And I think people tend to forget that as they're watching fantastic demos and thinking, I'm going to do that with my photo. And it works on that one photo of, of you know, a whale that was out on wherever and it cost, cost them £3,000 to get there and four days on a boat. But you've got a picture of Aunt Maud and you need to change that hat. 
<laughs> and I think if you focus on what's important to you and leave aside those kind of things, again, I think you'd be much happier with your results. Cool. I guess the other thing is not every app is necessarily for you. So maybe it's okay if you spend, you know, if you give it a, a, a scout, you know, a good scouts try and you really have tried your best and you and the app are just never going to see eye to eye, it's okay to give in and try something else. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I wish more people would do that because, again, you see, you see comments people make and it's like, I hate the way it does this, blah, blah, blah. And you think it's not compulsory to use <laughs> it. It's not compulsory to have Photoshop and to use it. But, you know, why are you watching a video about application X and then spending three hours writing a eulogy underneath it about why you'll never use it? <laughs> Just move on. If it's not for you, it is not for you. And some apps aren't. We all have preferences when it comes to what apps we use and reasons why we use it. I might choose to use something for a completely different reason than you, but we both use it. Alternatively, we might both decide we loathe it or you love it and I loathe it. And it doesn't matter. It's not a case if you're either right or you're wrong. It's just what works for you. Yeah, to me, apps have a personality. And just like, you know, humans can both be really nice people, but utterly incompatible with each other. You know, you and an app can just not get along. And my approach in the past would have been to, I'm going to make this app do things my way. But that just makes you very cranky, a lot of steam coming out of your ears, and it doesn't work. So my approach nowadays is don't swim upstream. Do things the way the app wants, and if that's not going to work, use another app. But don't work against the app because you can't make it go your way. It's not how it works. No, the problem, I think, is there is this kind of snob value to the app that you use. It's a bit like what phone have you got? And if you say you've gotten two versions back, oh, dear. And um, I I had somebody who um, had written into this group that I'm in and they'd bought Sony Vegas Pro to edit audio with. And they were really proud of their purchase. I've got this new microphone and I've bought this Sony Vegas Pro. And I think they felt that merely owning it just put them in a different league. Anyway, a few few weeks later, I can understand that. I mean, it's expensive. But a few weeks later, I'd noticed no podcast. They were putting a podcast out every week. And once after they got this, no podcast. Next minute, they they posted and said, "Um, anybody got any advice on noise reduction on audio? (laughs) And before anyone could even reply in the same post, they'd put a sharply worded note. Please don't suggest audacity as that's free. And I've got professional level software. And my answer was, there's no point in having it if you can't use it. That's ridiculous. And I think everybody that came back said, well, I can't help you because I don't know that application. But you know, I can't help but say that Audacity is pretty good in that area. <laughs> and I, think, <laughs> I thought they was just, I felt sorry for them, actually. I mean, that, I don't felt, like that attitude. That, oh, I'm, I'm, I, I am above such things. I use professional level software. Yeah, no one judges you by what you edited the photo with. They judge you by what the photo looks like when you're done mucking around with it. Well, there was no output from this person because they couldn't get it working at all. But I, I totally <laughs> agree with you. It doesn't really matter. But maybe people feel that, you know, the features that it's got, their stuff will be better when they finish. But it won't. It doesn't matter what you use. It really doesn't matter. I wouldn't look at somebody who would said, oh, well, I use Pixelmator and it's three versions old and think, ha, oh, well, it would have been better if you'd used Photoshop. No, that's not true. It's what you're comfortable with and what works for you. 
Yeah, you know, I think a, a, a regular on the show is Antonio Rosario, and I can just hear his his uh, distinct New York accent there saying, "You know, I've never, you know, I've never gone and looked at a photo and thought, I wonder how they edited it. I've gone at a photo and thought, that's a great photo, that's an awful photo. I like this, I don't like this, but I've never judged it by how it was done." Mm. Yeah, I guess it's a bit like the old camera thing, though, isn't it? You know, what camera do you use? What equipment have you got? And there is a kind of snob value to it. Yeah, but only among people who don't take photographs. Yeah, they're they're just wandering around. I'm I'm a semi pro. Oh yes, that they like to talk about it. Yes, rather than um. And you go to the flicker but, stream, and there's nothing there. You go, mm. Yeah, because <laughs> they're still working out how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a great time to be learning anything, to be honest, because you've got so many options. And training has moved on. It's not all um, education anymore. If you heard the term edutainment. <laughs> Well, I'm it a complete, is. total and utter documentary addict. So I've always <laughs> felt those two are completely related. But I think others are joining my point of view. Yeah, because I think now that it's such a busy area, um, online courses, you know, people delivering something online as, as a second job career strand to them is really, really popular. And, you know, you can put something out that's fantastic in terms of its content and it, it, w- it would teach somebody something. But without that certain something, people aren't going to watch it. They're going to watch something else because it was snazzier, faster, whatever. I mean, there was um, I, I watched this video and um, it was factually incorrect. It was a YouTube video. It was quite long and it was factually incorrect about how an application worked. Now, it's not how to run a nuclear installation, so fair enough, there was no harm done. But I was sitting there watching it and I was just thinking, the people who are following this who know less than me, what is their agonising frustration going to be like when they try and follow these instructions and it's completely wrong? And I thought, as I flicked up the screen, I thought, oh, just wait for the comments. And I looked underneath and there wasn't one negative comment. And I thought that's strange because this doesn't work there's no way that would work yeah and i realized it's like if there had been one nasty comment you know born out of frustration it would probably have set the tone for the rest but because the first comment was positive everybody just seemed to follow suit and the thing was this video had been seen by 1.7 million people this guy's a rock star in, in the learning environment but the thing is it was factually wrong and I thought, well, you know, what's best in terms of factually correct might not have the pizzazz. And it might have just got, you know, a couple of hundred views if, it, if they're lucky. Well, I don't personally judge training on how snazzy it is. I judge it on, at the end of it, can I do what I was setting out to do in the first place? Yeah. And I've watched videos where clearly English isn't their first language and they've not even bothered trying to VO it. They've literally just put up like pigeon English comments um, text in, in a text editor on the screen as they've gone along and if i was judging that video from its technical you know hmm. beauty forget it but in terms of at the end of it could you do what you needed to do and i thought yes yes i could and i thought well that's a good video yeah. but people tend to follow other people and you know if, if 1.7 million people have seen it then it must be good but it's not it's factually incorrect but never mind <laughs> so i'd say find somebody that you enjoy watching and that way you'll enjoy learning so it, it, I'm not saying that would be me. It could be somebody else entirely. But you will just find somebody or a group of people. And also, don't be closed-minded. Don't say, well, I've always watched that person, so that's the person I'm going to watch. 
try other people, even if they don't speak your language, because at the end of it, it's can you do what you want to do and whatever you need to do to get you there. That's your education. And I guess the other thing is there's no reason to watch just one video. No, not at all. I mean, sometimes when I'm thinking about what to do for YouTube, when I'm thinking about a video, I think, well, there's, there's no point doing that one because there's already one up there about that. And I might even have watched it. And I might think, well, that's not how I would do it. But if that video is there, is there much point in me doing another one? And one of the things that I did that in uh, last September, I did um, how to install El Capitan, you know, create a boot disk. And there was a couple of videos already up there. And I thought, well, I've done it for every other operating system that's been available in the Mac App Store. So I'll just do it for this one, otherwise it's a gap. Yeah. And I did this video, and it's got something like 12,000 hits. And I, I thought I'd be lucky to get a few hundred because there's millions of videos out there that do that. And maybe the way that I do it suits some people, maybe the way I do it doesn't suit other people. But that, that's the beauty of it. You're not limited anymore to, well, I've bought that book, so I can't buy that book because I've got no money for it. Yeah. Now, I actually use YouTube like a search engine. I go to it and I type in what I'm looking for, and then I watch the results from there. I don't even bother going to Google and doing that because it's probably faster for me to watch a video to do it. So I'm probably a video learning person. Yeah, I, I, I would be with you there. Visual, you know, show me and I'll, you know, monkey see, monkey do. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Sometimes that's not the best way. I think it just depends because sometimes I'll watch, I'll watch it and I'll think I've got it and then I'll sit down and do it. And I think, you know, you've not got that. And I have to go back to the video and watch it again and go through it again. Other times I just want to read about it and I don't even want to be near a computer when I do it, which seems strange because whatever I'd be reading about would be computer related. It would be learning to do something. But sometimes I think that a distance between you and the machine you actually pay more attention to the book or whatever. Maybe you are, you are watching a video. You pay more attention because your hand isn't reaching for the mouse and you're not thinking, I'll just try that bit. And yeah. while you're doing that, you've missed the next 10 minutes of it. So sometimes I take time away from it as well. So we are very lucky at the moment that there's so many different ways to learn. You can go for the long courses if you want. You can go for shorter courses. You can go for individual videos. And you actually have to pay for very, very little percent of it these days. There's so much out there. So if you're on a limited budget, you don't have to be hampered by, and now I've bought that, I can't afford the training, because there's so much out there for free. And like you said earlier, a lot of the manufacturers actually have content of their own, either in the traditional manual or on their website, where they may have a whole blog or a whole series of tutorials. Mm, they do, more so than they ever used to, really. Again, probably because people expect that now. No one's going to read a 100-page manual, cover to cover, but they might look at six videos. I think people will look at the videos, but I, I've actually been surprised by how many people, um, particularly in Affinity Photo, have said, I've, I've, you know, is there a manual? I want to read a manual. And um, the, the best advice from Affinity, who make it, was this in, set of instructions for converting the help system into a PDF. And I must admit, I'm a manual kind of girl too, and I did do that. And I thought, well, I would like to actually look at it. Um, but so many people were saying, oh, I'd really like a book in it. I want a book on it. And I thought, there must be one. And I went to Amazon and there were about four. And wow. every one of them was German. Oh, there's, a, thought, there's a gap in the market. Yeah, it's a shame they've not translated them. And then I'm thinking, why so many in one language and none in any other language? So some people prefer the book approach as well. 
I'd say just try all the ways because what you'll learn, you'll learn in different ways. Hmm. Yeah, you'll pick up different pieces from the different avenues. Hmm. And don't don't think because you haven't got Photoshop that you can't look at a Photoshop tutorial and, and adapt it because they are all similar-ish. The differences are very small. And the mathematics is the same under the hood. You know, it, yeah. you know, contrast is contrasted. You know, you know, levels are levels. You know, these things have a meaning, and they're the same across them all. I think the problem people have with trying to do that—you know, take a tutorial from one app and then apply it to another—is like you said. If you've not got the basics of where stuff is in the interface, you'll get very frustrated. Yes. So, spend some time learning where things are. But don't try and sort of memorize it. Just like go go by nature. That's over there. That's up there. That's down there. And then try any tutorial you find for any application that's related in that field. And and take it as an exercise. How would I do that in this app? How would I do that in that app? Yeah. And obviously some apps will prove to be better than others. But you might surprise yourself with how capable less expensive applications are. And some of them build up such a community as well that you can learn from each other in the community. Yes, Okay, well, we've, we've come to the end of our hour. Um, is there anything that you think we should say before we wrap up that we forgot to say? Ooh, that's, that's a question. That is a big question, isn't it? <laughs> I'd say just, just keep learning because I love to learn. And I think we are at a point where people are, it, it's virtually a, a hobby now for people where they're either, that they are learning something, learning something all of the time. So whatever it is that you're trying to do, just push it that little bit further and try and learn one, one extra feature, one extra shortcut, just little by little by little, and you'll be surprised in a few weeks how far you've got. That sounds like a very positive way to end. Um, thank you very much for giving us so freely of your time this evening. You are very welcome. Do you want to let the listeners know where they can find your work? Well, if you're interested in designs, photography or editing uh, your photos, then your best bet is to go to YouTube and search for The Elaine Giles. I've also got a blog at elainegiles.co.uk. Uh, you can probably get to everywhere that I am from there. So that's a good place. Okay. Um, if you're interested in live sessions, then our live sessions are done through macbyteslearning.co.uk. And that they are all free to attend. Excellent. Okay, well, we'll pop a link in the show notes to elainegiles.co.uk, um, okay. since that will be the hub to everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Um, You're very, very welcome. Now, dear listeners, I mentioned show notes. You will find show notes at let's-talk.ie. Um, right now, this very second, the website happens to be down, but I'll pick it up shortly. Um, when you happen to be there, assuming I have succeeded in restoring my website, um, thank you, Jetpack, for breaking a second site this week, um, you will find three large blue buttons uh, at the top of the page under the heading Support the Show. I would very much appreciate it if people would uh, support the show. So those of you who already sponsored the show on Patreon, thank you very much. You people are the reason this show keeps existing because at the end of every month, Patreon money comes in, bills come in, I take one, apply to the other, and that way, you know, I, I get to survive. So it's, it's very important, and I really appreciate those of you who do support the show. For those of you who don't support the show yet, or on Patreon or whatever, Patreon is really cool, because it lets you pledge a small amount of money for every show I get out. There will be exactly two every month, one Apple show, one photo show. So if you'd like to give me a dollar a month, pledge 50 cent, and then it'll come to a dollar. And the great thing is, if you send me a dollar via PayPal... PayPal take 46 cents of it and I get 50 whatever is left. Whereas if you do it through Patreon, they all they take them all together and then I only pay like, you know, two or three euro of fees instead of 
over half. So it is an amazingly effective way of getting lots of small amounts of money to mean something. Um, so as I say, let's slash talk dot IE. Um, I've been your host, Bart Bouchot, so you can find me at bartb.ie. And until next time, happy snapping. Listening to another great podcast in the Stoplight Network. Are you a geek? I guess so. What do you mean you guess so? Prove your geek cred. I don't need to prove myself to you. I'm the new host of the geekiest show ever. We will see about that. Don't you just hate it when droids think they have all the control and don't know their role? You know, they forget that we can turn the power off. Oh no, you can't. Oh yes, I can. Don't, please. I'll be good. That's better. Nothing worse than artificial intelligence being, well, unintelligent. Head across to iTunes and subscribe to the Geekiest Show Ever podcast. The only show truly dedicated to geekery.